0: Chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, I'll i uh, I'll read this and pray, and we won't come back to it really until the end of tonight's lesson, but I, I do want to start with a passage of Scripture while you're turning. Uh, as a reminder, this Wednesday is the men's prayer meeting at 6 p.m. here, and so don't forget about that. I don't know how the other men have felt. I have personally... Uh, looked forward to it and have wished that it was, uh, I have already wished that it was more often than it is. Um, but we'll we'll do that this Wednesday at six. And I think everybody knows the goal is that as after the men have kind of got a little bit of an idea of what it looks like to have a, a corporate prayer meeting in that form, that we will eventually have a church wide prayer meeting. But we want to make sure we know what we're doing first. Uh, so that It it goes well. So, Ephesians chapter 4, let me read verses 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the Word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for gathering us here. We pray that you would help us to understand your word. We pray that you would help us again to grow in our appreciation for your church. Uh, We thank you that you would save a people, a number from uh, all nations and all times. We look forward to gathering with that number in the future. But until then, we are so thankful that we get to gather with our local church here. We pray that you would help us to appreciate uh, your church in in every uh, form that is revealed to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we are considering the, uh, what we could say, the doctrine or the study of the church, ecclesiology. I think I'm going to call this series as a whole, I'm going to name it after the book that we're going to go through, The Glory of a True Church, Um, so that's probably what I'm just going to start saying, the Glory of a True Church series. And we will get to that book eventually. I'm thinking maybe one more study next week from our confession, some things about the regulative principle, and then after that we'll jump into that workbook. And And if you haven't, you can go ahead and begin to read through it. Um, but what we're doing right now is sort of laying the groundwork for some of that. That book that was written doesn't cover everything. And he even says in the introduction, other people have written far more on this than than I have or I'm able to. He says basically what they've written is either inaccessible to the unlearned or so voluminous that poor people can't buy it. So I've written a little pamphlet. That's the way he's written. So we want to lay some foundational or some groundwork for it before we get there. I want to revisit a couple things that we've already studied from our confession of faith. Uh, For those of you who weren't here or have come here since that study, we've done a detailed study already through our confession of faith. Uh, Practically line by line, almost word for word, through our confession and have studied it. All of that's online, so if there are things that are still uh, out in the realm of uh, unknowing for you, Check that out and if there are still questions left unanswered, like I said last week, write those down and, and get them to me and we'll, we'll try to address all of these matters with regard to the church. We began last week by looking at the bedrock of all of this which is the Word of God and there are some who, as soon as you mention the concept of a confession of faith, they see that as almost in opposition to the Word of God, as if we must choose between the Word of God, or a confession of faith, uh, whereas we would say, no, they're, they're, they're not opposed to each other. A confession is what we call a subordinate standard, merely articulating what we believe the Word of God teaches on several subjects. And every good confession begins with stating basically what we said last Lord's Day with regard to the Word of God, and our confession does that as well. So these things are not opposed to each other. They sort of come in and help one another and supplement one another. And the, the general uh, method of attack in this study is going to be using all of these subordinate standards. So, we're going to use the scriptures, and then we'll go from the scripture to the confession, maybe from the confession, then back to the scripture. Then we'll look at some of what Keach has to say. We might see what Keach says, and then go back to the confession and say, Here, here's where this comes from, and then go back to the scriptures. We're going to be using several different uh, tools as we walk through this study. Um, Three, anyway, if it were up to me, there would be four or five. I have multiple things that I want to use, but that's kind of how we're going to go through it. For this evening, we're going to be using our confession quite a bit. So if you have a copy or if you're close to a hymnal, go ahead and get that out and have it ready because we're going to be reading through quite a bit of the the chapter on the church. Uh, I made a statement last week that Hopefully it wasn't controversial. I said we are a Baptist church. I don't think that's controversial to anyone. We're a Baptist church. Baptists historically have staunchly defended liberty of conscience and have opposed human introductions into the worship of God in his church. Now... Anyone who comes out of the reformed tradition would argue that that that's sort of a reformed distinctive, is we oppose the introduction of human uh, inventions into the worship of God. However, we as Baptists would say, we we feel like we've gone the furthest in biblical reform, especially in this matter of ecclesiology and. Uh, and how baptism applies to that, infant baptism and things like that. But that, that's a big, it's a big deal for Baptists. Uh, Baptists have been mistreated historically because we've taken such a strong position on these matters. To be a Baptist historically was to make a statement about your ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, and not so much about, uh, or, or I should say not first and foremost, about who gets wet when they get wet and how much water we use when they get wet. It was about our doctrine of the church. James Renahan says, Ecclesiology was the driving force behind the Baptist movement. Now, when we hear Baptist, we think, Well, what makes me different is we, we don't baptize babies. But that, that is secondary to this matter of what we consider to be a true church. We are distinct in our doctrine of a true church from other groups. We answer the question, what is a true church differently than other groups as Baptists? So when it comes to the glory of a true church, we as Baptists are going to flesh that out a little differently than other denominations. And that's why I made a point last week to say that we are we are, that was in the, the morning, Message: We're not dispensational, so we don't go to this extreme. We're also not Presbyterian, so we don't go to this extreme. We're we're somewhere in the middle. There there there, it, there are distinctives about being a Baptist that really set us apart from everybody. We're not we're not the Plymouth Brethren. We're not we're not these different groups. We are who we are. And, and again, it's not that's not to pound a, a a Baptist pride drum. That's just to say we believe that the Bible teaches certain things. And when you flesh all of that out, you come to what is called a Baptist. When it comes to the glory of a true church, we we would answer that question differently than others. Now, last week I listed a a long list of what are what I have noticed to be errors uh, pervasive in in the church and amongst evangelicals, and one of those was this, this idea regarding the distinction and relationship, distinction between and relationship. Of or between the universal church and the local church. this th- There's a confusion that surrounds those ideas that I-, I would say it keeps popping up. I don't know that it ever goes away. We, when I say pop up, I'm thinking of whack-a-mole, but it never seems to disappear. It's just always pervading modern evangelical culture, this confusion about what is the universal church, what is the local church, how are they different, how do they relate to one another. And as we begin to move forward and unpack the glory of a true church, we have to know the difference between these two things and the relationship that these things share. We, we have to know that or none of these other things are going to make sense. For example, if the glory of a true church is the power and uh, the, the power to and the exercise of biblical discipline, which is being able to bring in those who should be in and keep out those who should be out. If that is the glory of a true church, one might ask, how can that be done in the universal church? The answer is it can't be done. It's not possible how how could discipline take place if the universal church or invisible church takes priority over the local church as in it's it's more important in our practice well the answer is it can't because no one would technically need to join a local church everyone could say well we're members of the universal church that's that's the that's the the, the preeminent church in practice, so why do I need to take that extra step, the, the difficulty of, of local church membership? No one would really be able to be meaningfully excommunicated from a local church because they would say, well, I mean, I'm, I'm, just, I'm still a member of the universal church. It doesn't really matter. And they could go right down the street to another church and shake hands and walk right in, and this is how uh, it happens in, in many places in our day. None of these things would carry any weight. The the glory of the church would completely disappear if if all we have is the universal church or even if the universal church is to take priority in our practice. So we have to understand these two ways of thinking about the church and how they relate to one another and how they differ uh, from one another. So, in our confession of faith, and I told you to turn in your hymn, I didn't even get mine out. In our confession of faith... Uh, I'm going to start with the first paragraph. It's page 683 if you are still looking for it. The first paragraph in the chapter on the church. And we're going to consider the Catholic or universal church. So I'll begin by reading. It says, the Catholic or universal church... Which, with respect to the internal work of the Spirit of truth and grace, may be called invisible. Now, I'll stop there and just point out that we have three terms here that have historically been used to describe this, I I could say, this body of God's people, or I could say the church from this perspective. Throughout this study, I want to make sure that we understand we're not talking about two different churches. It's the same group, just viewed from a different perspective. So we have three words here. The first word is Catholic, which means literally, on the whole. Catholic means on the whole. So when you see the Catholic Church, with a lowercase c, what that simply means is the whole church. That's what that word means. All of God's people. Then the next word that's used is universal, the Catholic or universal. These words are used here basically synonymous. The word universal means literally turned into one. You can hear the word uni, one, in the word universal, turned into one. So when we speak of the universal church, that is to speak of all of God's people, in one body. Catholic, the whole church. Universal, all of God's people in one body. Then we have this third term, which carry, which brings with it a little bit of explanation. Uh, the Catholic or universal church, which, in parenthesis, with respect to the internal work of the Spirit and truth of grace, may be called invisible. That's the third word. Invisible. In what way is this church or this perspective of the church invisible? He just told us or or they just told us with respect to the internal work of the Spirit and truth of grace. You see, the internal work of the Spirit goes unseen to the human eye. We cannot see the Spirit of God working inside of someone's heart. The, The grace of God working in a human heart. We cannot see that. These things are not visible to us. So we have three terms. They're all referencing the same body viewed from the same perspective. Catholic, the whole church, universal, the whole church viewed as one body, or invisible. We we can't see the, the work of grace in all of these people. It's invisible to us. Now the next question is, who makes up this Catholic, universal, invisible church? Well, we continue reading. The Catholic, universal, invisible church. Now think of this, because they're going to give us a picture here. Consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one under Christ the head thereof the church from this perspective is made of men and women, boys and girls from the beginning of time all the way to the end of time as we know it, this is all of those for whom Christ died the elect, they all make up this catholic, universal, invisible church, now you, you try to picture that all of the elect who have been, are, or shall be gathered into one. You try to picture that, you realize, I can't picture that. You know why? Because it's invisible to us. We cannot picture this body. A few things are certain. Number one, we cannot see this body. Number two, we cannot gather with this body Presently, I should say we will someday, but presently, we cannot gather with this body. Number three, this is the church. When we speak of the Catholic Church, the universal church, the invisible church, we're talking about the church as she is viewed purely from God's perspective. God's perspective. It's not invisible to God. God knows his people, he sees his people. We cannot see. It's invisible to us. It's a perspective that God has. Though we accept it as a truth based on the revelation of Scripture, that is as far as we can go in our relationship to this notion of a universal church. We can see texts. We can affirm it. We can say, I believe it is so. And that's it. That's as far as we can go. Someday we'll go further. We'll see it. We'll be amongst that gathered body. But right now, that's as far as we can go. The sum of the matter is that God has saved a people by the blood of His Son, and the fullness of that group is known and seen only by God. So if we had to produce a definition of the invisible or universal church, we would say this is the church or the people of God Considered in a manner that is not visible, tangible, or even truly comprehensible to man. This perspective of the church is known really only to God. I'll read you three texts here. You don't have to turn there. Christ spoke of this church when He said, I will build My church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's one singular church. My one church. Christ said, I'll build it. Paul said to the Ephesians that the Father gave Christ as head over all things to the church. One, singular church. And elsewhere, 2 Timothy 2.19, Paul says, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are His. We do not know all those who are His. The Lord knows. He can see this full number. We cannot. We cannot see this body. We cannot gather with this body. We cannot worship with this body. We cannot fulfill the one another commands of Scripture with this body. This is the church viewed purely from God's perspective. Now when you hear that, you might think, well, wait a second. I know know Christians from over, over here at this church and over at that church and over there, and I know Christians on the other side of the world. And that's true. You can know some believers in different places. Some believers are not the universal church. We just said, it's the whole number of the elect. We can know of believers from different times and places. I know of believers from thousands of years ago. I know of Abraham, but I can't see him. I can't gather with him. I can't worship with him. That's not the universal church. We, we can imagine there will be believers after we're gone. We we die, Christ is going to continue to save people. I I, I know that will be true. I cannot see them. I cannot gather with them. These are simply evidences when we, we, we say, well, I know believers there and there and there and there. All that is evidence of is that this doctrine is true. But that doesn't change the fact that we cannot see, know, or gather with this church at the present time. We know there is an invisible or universal church because of who God is and because of what He said and it's a matter of faith. We believe this doctrine because of what God has said. Not because we can see it. Not because we can meet with them and gather with them, but because of what He said. The only way that this truth can in a meaningful way become a tangible reality for us in practice is through what we call the local church. That's the only way that that becomes tangible to us now is through the local church. The word local means pertaining to a place. So if you go in for surgery, they might put you under full anesthesia and they knock you out. Or they might apply what? A local anesthetic right to the place where they're going to be working. That's what that word means, local, in a a particular place. So when we speak of the local church, we're talking about the people of God found in a particular place, okay? And there are many particular places, therefore there are many local churches. Now I want to show you this from our confession. Look at paragraph 2, and this will will require you to move your eyes quickly because I'm just going to be snatching phrases here and there. Paragraph 2, this is at the end of that paragraph, which will be at the top of six eighty four if you're using the hymnal of such ought all particular congregations to be constituted. So we have a reference to particular congregations. Paragraph three: the purest churches, plural, more than one. Uh, paragraph five, uh, second sentence: those thus called. He commandeth to walk together in particular societies or churches, plural. Paragraph 6, the members of these churches. Paragraph 7, to each of these churches. Paragraph 8, a particular church. Paragraph 9, second line, the office of bishop or elder in a church. Paragraph 10, refers to uh, bishops or elders. I'm trying to tell you where to look. The phrase is, in his churches, it is incumbent upon or on the churches. Paragraph 11, it be incumbent upon bishops or pastors of the churches. Paragraph 12, some are admitted unto the Privileges of a church, and before that, uh, join themselves to particular churches. Paragraph 14 refers to each of, or as each church and all the members of it. Paragraph 15 refers to either the churches in general are concerned, it's the second line, or any one church. The point in that little exercise is to show that there, there, there begins this idea early in this chapter that runs all the way through the end. Yes, there is the invisible, the, the Catholic, the universal church, but what we need to consider most importantly is the local church, these particular congregations. All of these phrases imply or presuppose that in addition to the universal, invisible view of the church, that's God's view, there is also man's view on earth. And we call that the local church. This is where the invisible becomes visible as the saints gather into particular congregations. These are smaller, visible, local manifestations of the universal reality. And the scriptures clearly teach this. As I said this morning, I, I, I would suggest that the New Testament really becomes absolute nonsense apart from this doctrine of the local church. It's essential to our understanding of the Bible, of Christianity. I would even say to the work of Christ Himself in the world right now, you, you cannot make sense of it apart from the local church. Let me read you some texts. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians two, To the church of God that is in Corinth. Now think about that. It's, it, this is simple, I know. The church, there's one. But this one is in one place, Corinth. This is a church that is found exclusively in this place and not another place. It's in Corinth. In Acts 13, 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Again, there we have the church, singular, in a place at Antioch. And in that church, in that place, there were these men. These men were not in other churches, yet Paul and Barnabas would be sent out. But not yet, they're in this church. These men were not in the church at Corinth, or the church at Rome, or the church in Thessalonica, they were at the church in Antioch. You say, well, where, where's, uh, where's uh, Manan been these days? He's at the church in Antioch, in that place. If you want to see him on the Lord's Day, you're going to have to go to that place, because he's with that church there. Acts fourteen twenty seven, And when they arrived and gathered the church together. This is the same church, this church of Antioch, was capable of being gathered into one place. They gathered them together. And they knew who was to be gathered and who wasn't to be gathered. And those who were gathered knew why they were being gathered, because they were the church of that place. They didn't all just show up into a room and see a bunch of strangers wondering, why, why are we here? What, what, what's, what's going on here? No, they knew. We're the church of this place. We're here for a church meeting in this place. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. This is Paul speaking to the elders of Ephesus. The elders of Ephesus were to care for the flock of God. Where? Ephesus. That's where their church was. God had made them overseers of the church in that place. They were to pay attention to all the flock. That flock in Ephesus. They they knew their flock. The flock knew their elders. They knew who they were. Matthew 18, 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So again, we have the church. The word means assembly. Tell it to the assembly. There's... A group of people that Christ is referring to that is capable of coming together and being told of this offense. And those in the church were related to this offender in a special way. He was with them. They they wouldn't have said, Who are you talking about? We don't know this guy. No, this was their church. He was among them. And the church here is capable of going to this man themselves. They knew him. He knew them, they were a church. First Corinthians 11:20. "When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat." And that elsewhere in that section it says, "When you come together as a church." These people were able to gather in one place, for a meal together, and they were told to wait for one another, implying that they knew who was going to come. This is not just an indefinite waiting. Leave the door open. Folks are still coming. Hundreds are coming. Let's just wait. Nobody eat yet. We don't know who might show up. No, they knew who the church is. Wait for the church to gather, then proceed. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. On the first day of the week, of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Now, think about it. Paul is basically saying, listen, when I get there, I don't want to have to go around to everybody's house. So, how how does he avoid that? Well, he makes sure that all of the things that have been set aside are all in one place. So, he just goes to that one place. So, these people are coming together on the first day of every week in one place, the same day, every week, same place, Every week, same people, same day, same place, every week, store it aside. Paul comes and says, oh, there it is. There's that stuff that I came to get. You see, this is a group of people in a a church together, a a place. You can find them. You know where they're going to be. They know where they're going to be. They're a local church. 1 Peter 5, 1 and 2, so I exhort the elders among you. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So the elders are among the church. The elders among you. And then the elders are to shepherd the flock of God that is among them. So the elders are in the church, and the church is in and amongst the elders. They, there's this exclusive relationship that they share with one another. Your elders are your elders. Your church is your, your church. That's how a local church works. Similarly, we see in Hebrews thirteen seventeen, Obey your leaders. And submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Your leaders, the only way you can obey and submit to them is if you know who they are. You can't obey and submit to someone that you don't know, that you never see, that you heard, that you read about in a book one time or that you saw on a, a video one time. Likewise, they cannot keep watch over an indefinite number of souls. The, the, the elders of the church are not expected to just keep watch over The universal church, every Christian you see. No, it's those in that church. These leaders knew who they were keeping watch over. Again, the New Testament becomes a nonsensical document apart from the presupposition that there's more than simply the universal church the invisible church that's known only to God. There are commands and expectations of every Christian that cannot be fulfilled apart from a local church. There's worship required of every Christian that cannot be performed apart from a local church. And that's why I say the local church in our practice actually takes priority over the universal. Now, if we pay attention to our confession, this is exactly how the confession frames this idea. It, it, here's, here's the idea. There are things every Christian has to do. Without the local church, you can't do them. It's not possible. Therefore, there must be this concept of a local church and membership in that church. Uh, look at, back, back at the confession, paragraph 5. And here I'll, I'll read a little more. Paragraph 5, In the execution of this power... Wherewith he is so entrusted, the Lord Jesus calleth out of the world unto himself, through the ministry of his word, by his Spirit, those that are given unto him by his Father, that they may walk before him in all the ways of obedience which he prescribeth to them in his word. Those thus called, he commandeth to walk together in particular societies or churches for the mutual edification, their mutual edification, and the due performance of that public worship which he requireth of them in the world. So here, there are, quote, ways of obedience prescribed in the Word which require a local church. Mutual edification, public worship. These are things that are commanded of every Christian. Can't do them apart from a local church. They cannot be performed apart from membership in the local church. They cannot be fulfilled by running into a friend at the grocery store or even sitting down for coffee with a brother or sister. That's not what the Bible is talking about. It assumes, and our confession assumes, the local church. Paragraph 6. The members of these churches are saints by calling, visibly manifesting and evidencing in and by their profession and walking their obedience unto that call of Christ and do willingly consent to walk together according to the appointment of Christ, giving up themselves to the Lord and, one another, and to one another by the will of God in professed subjection to the ordinances of the gospel. So, there are ordinances of the gospel, things that Christ has commanded for His New Testament church that every Christian is to subject themselves to, and they can't do that apart from the local church. It's not possible. Paragraph 7. To each of these churches, thus gathered, according to his mind, declaring in his word, he hath given all that power and authority which is in any way needful for their carrying on that order in worship and discipline which he hath instituted for them to observe with commands and rules for the due and right exerting and executing of that power. So there's order in worship commanded by Christ. There's discipline commanded by Christ. Christ. There are rules for how to exert and execute the power. Church discipline. There are rules for going about that. They cannot be applied anywhere else except for the local church. They don't make sense apart from the local church. Paragraph 8. A particular church gathered and completely organized according to the mind of Christ consists of officers and members, the officers appointed by Christ to be chosen and set apart by, and, and the officers appointed by Christ to be chosen and set apart by the church. And We'll skip to paragraph 9. The way appointed by Christ for the calling of any person, fitted and gifted by the Holy Spirit, unto the office of bishop or elder in a church, is that he be chosen thereunto by the common suffrage of the church itself. So the church, in these two paragraphs, the church is... Uh, is to receive, recognize, and receive officers. Those officers, that that phrase there in in paragraph 9, common suffrage, that means voting, raising your hand, I, me, that can't happen apart from a church, a gathering of a group of people. Paragraph 10, the work of pastors being constantly to establish "...attend the service of Christ in His churches, in the ministry of the Word and prayer, with watching for their souls, as they that must give an account to Him. It is incumbent on the churches to whom they minister, not only to give them all due respect, but also to communicate to them of all their good things, according to their ability, so as they may have a comfortable supply, without being themselves entangled in secular affairs and may also be capable of exercising hospitality toward others, and this is required by the law of nature and by the express order of our Lord Jesus, who hath ordained that they that preach the gospel should live of the gospel. So here we see pastors have a duty to tend to the administration of the word of God and prayer and to care for souls. The... Churches have a duty to properly respect and care for their pastors. These things are commanded in Scripture. I'll let you look up the references. They're commanded in Scripture. You can't obey it apart from a local church. Paragraph 11. Although it be incumbent on bishops or pastors of the churches to be instant in preaching the Word by way of office, yet the work of preaching the Word is not so peculiarly confined to them but that others also gifted and fitted by the Holy Spirit for it and approved and called by the church may and ought to perform it. Here we are reminded that there are other men besides the elders of a church who might be gifted to preach. And it is their duty to do it. Not an option. Christ gives you a gift, you got to do it. And it's the duty of the church to approve and call those men. That can't happen where there is no church. Paragraph 12. As all believers are bound to join themselves to particular churches, when and where they have opportunity so to do, so all that are admitted under the privileges of a church are also under the censures and government thereof, according to the rule of Christ. The Scripture gives prescriptions for privileges, of being a church member. It also gives prescriptions for censures or government discipline that happens in a church. You can't be subject to that apart from the local church. Paragraph 13, No church members upon any offense taken by them, having performed their duty required of them towards the person they are offended at, ought to disturb any church order or absent themselves from the assemblies of the church or administration of any ordinances upon the account of such offense, at any of their fellow members, but to wait upon Christ in the further proceeding of the church. There again we have these concepts of church order. We have assemblies. We have ordinances that are commanded. This can't take place where there is no church. Biblically, confessionally, we see that there is a view of the church which does not, in a practical way, apply to us. And by practical, I mean in our normal practice, the universal church. We don't get up on a certain day of the week and gather with the universal church. It's not possible. We can't do that. But there is also a plethora of commands, obligations, and duties laid at the feet of every Christian that cannot be fulfilled apart from considering the church in another sense, the local sense. In our practice, in our experience, in what we do on a daily or weekly basis, the local church takes the priority in this life. There will come a time when the idea of a local church gives way and disappears, gives way to that universal and the invisible church becomes visible, and we're gathered with that multitude, but now is not that time. Those who intentionally avoid covenantal communion with a true local church have simply chosen to absent themselves from obedience to an entire host of commands from God Almighty in His Word. God commands all these things. They can't be done without being a member of a church. Well, I, I think I'll just, I'll just sit at home. I, I'm, I'm a part of the universal church. Well, and, and some might do it from ignorance. Some might do it just simply out of defiance. Either way, it's disobedience. You cannot obey the commands of God apart from this. Now, you might say, well, I, well, I know plenty of Christians who aren't church members. And you might know them, but the New Testament doesn't know them. The Bible doesn't know of those people. You might know them. The Bible doesn't know them. That should should give us cause for alarm. Now, what's the relationship between these two perspectives of the church? I'll quote Renahan again. The universal church, as it exists at any historical moment, is visible by virtue of the presence of Christian congregations throughout the world. In other words... How do we know there's a universal church? Because there are local churches. We can see it. The assumption from Scripture and history here, I'm quoting again from paragraph 5 of our confession, the assumption is that if the Lord Jesus calleth out of the world unto himself through the ministry of His Word, by His Spirit, those that are given unto Him by His Father, that they may walk before Him in all the ways of obedience which He prescribeth to them in His Word. The assumption is that those people are going to walk before Him in all the ways of obedience that He prescribeth to them in His Word. Right? Christ calls people to obey. We're going to assume that those people He's called are going to obey. And what does He prescribe? Those thus called He commandeth to walk together in particular societies or churches for their mutual edification and the due performance of that public worship which He requireth of them in the world. There is a public worship in the world God requires. It takes place in the local church. It doesn't take place in other places. It's in the gathering of the local church. You see, if we go back to paragraph 1, We note that there is an internal work of the Spirit, an internal work of grace that happens in every true believer. And what that does is that causes the believer to follow the commands of God. In in chapter 16 of our confession, paragraph 3, we learn that there is an actual influence of the Holy Spirit to work in them to will and to do of His good pleasure. That's Philippians 2. In other words, the Holy Spirit causes the saints... To obey God's commands. So wherever there has been an invisible work of grace in a saint, that saint will be seeking to obey God's commands. Well, God commands the saints to gather into particular societies called churches. Therefore, wherever there is a work of grace, the saints will be gathering into local churches. Now that brings us back to the passage that we read at the beginning. Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, let's take the two main ideas of this passage and switch them. Let's, let's think about it backwards. At the end of what we just read, he refers to there being one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. These are all references to things that every Christian has in common. These are descriptions of the universal church and the work of grace in every Saint. And we see that, we only would have to look at one phrase, one body. There is one body. That's universally speaking. Now, we're, we're working our way backwards. Why did Paul bring up this idea of the one body? What, what led him here? I would, I would say, he came here to further press the application of certain virtues... In the local church. Notice what he said at the beginning. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You don't have to bear in love with people you've never met, can't see, might not be alive anymore, might not be born yet because they're in the invisible church. He's talking about in your church as you are with believers in your congregation. The saints who are in Ephesus, those same ones whose elders were being admonished in Acts chapter 20. The saints in that place gathered into a church with elders among them. In other words, Paul takes these duties of the local church and he enforces them with the reality of the universal church. Do these things locally because there is one body. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, etc. That's what he's doing. What he doesn't do, I think that's important just to take note of what he's doing, because what he doesn't do is he does not use the reality of the invisible church to release the Christians from their obligations to a local church. That's what happens in our day. The complete opposite of what Paul does here. He doesn't say, it's okay if you don't go to church. You are the church. No, you're not. You are not by yourself the church. The church is an assembly. You, I, am not the church. He doesn't say, well, you can have church at home with your family if you want to because you are the church. No, you're not. You you, you can't do that. Now, this year when we went to the beach, our plan was to go to the, the church where the others go yearly pastor Oki. that was our plan to go gather with the church why because it's the lord's day and that's what christians do you gather with the church and so we made the plan we drove down there i don't forget how far it was a good ways service starts at 11 we get there there's people sitting on the front porch they come and they say service is canceled today pastor oki has got COVID. Well, by now it's right at 11 o'clock. If any church is worth attending, they've already started. What are we going to do? Now, I didn't think to myself, oh, that's no big deal. We are the church. We're the universal church. I did not think that. I thought, we're going to miss church today. We don't get church. We don't get to worship with the saints. Now, we went back home. We pulled up a uh, live stream of uh, Mount Zion down in Florida, and we all sat and we watched the service we watched a worship service in our room together. That was not church. I did not think in my my mind boy i 'm glad we we got church today. I thought in the providence of God, we missed we missed out i don't think God said now how I cannot believe you would do that i don 't think that's the way he thought it was It was out of our control. And there are things that at times are out of our control. We can't change them. But I didn't think, well, this is an adequate substitute. I thought, this is what we will do to make do, to get by, until we can gather again with the saints. Paul doesn't say here, well, just be nice to the people that you know are Christians. If you run into them out in public somewhere, be nice to them, encourage them a little bit, and we'll, we'll call that. Church, because, I mean, you are the church. Or two or three are gathered, right? We'll count that. He doesn't say that. We never see anything like that in the New Testament. Rather, Paul starts by pressing upon these duties, them these duties, which are impossible apart from the local church, like bearing with one another, being patient with one another, exercising humility and gentleness with one another, maintaining unity with one another. He says all of that, do that, then he bases all of that on the reality of the universal church. There is one body. To say it in the reverse, since there is an invisible church known to God, created through invisible grace, then those who have experienced that invisible grace prove that they have experienced that invisible grace by gathering together in local churches and exercising that grace toward one another. The evidence of membership in the universal church, the invisible church, is to bear the fruit of grace in the life of a local church. Again, we can't see the universal, Catholic, invisible church. So if somebody says, I'm a member of that, prove it. Well, well, I can't. Why? Because it's invisible. There's no way to evidence that. Now, they might begin to give forth some... Uh, fruits of grace. You say, well, they tell the truth. They're honest. They're kind. They know the gospel. They read their Bible. They pray. But what about this plethora of other commands in Scripture that only apply in one context the local church that they say, I just don't do those." We would say, I'm, I'm beginning to worry about the fruit of grace and what I'm seeing. We see it work itself out in the local church. Those who cannot produce the nef- necessary fruit of gracious local churchmanship prove that they have not been the recipients of that invisible grace of God, regardless of their profession or confession, regardless of morality, regardless of how hard they can pound their fist and stand with conviction and say, well, I don't go to church because there are no good churches around here. I'm this holy, but nobody else is that holy, so we just stay at home. That, to me, is that's a good way to just say, I'm not a Christian. Regardless of all of that, if they don't love the brethren, in the context of the local church, God says, they don't know me. He says, how, how can you... If you can't love your brother who you can see, not your invisible brother, your, your visible brother, you can see him. If you can't love him, how can you love me who you can't see? That's 1 John 4. So, the same church can be understood in two ways or from two perspectives, universally or invisibly. This is the body we can't see, we can't gather with, we can't worship with yet. We cannot fulfill the one another commands of Scripture with this body. This church is viewed purely from the perspective of God. And then there's the local church, which can be seen. We gather with this church, we worship with this church, we fulfill the one another commands of Scripture with this church. We carry out the many commands of God in the Bible in and with the local church. God has not given us a list of commands with no application for them, no no place to to work them out, right? Uh, You think of somebody who's just got a great deal on some car part of a car that you don't own. You would be silly to say, but this is a good deal, man. I mean, this guy's got such and such a part. Yeah, but you don't have a car. You don't have an application for that. You're going to get that. It's going to be useless to you. God doesn't do that. He doesn't say, do all of these things, but I'm going to give you no place to apply it. No, He says, here are all of these commands, and here's the place to apply it. The local church. The universal church is manifested in the world through the existence of local churches. The members of the universal church manifest that membership by joining themselves to a local church. The existence of a universal church does not allow for exceptions to local church membership. Now, as I said, there might be exceptions like the providence of God has, has interrupted, but we can't say, well, because because universal invisible, therefore I don't do local. That, that doesn't fly. Rather, universal membership, universal church membership undergirds and supports the notion of local church membership and participation. We'll we'll stop there.